Well, good morning. We're so glad that you're here. We're starting a brand new series called Lost in Love, and I'm excited about it. Love relationships is a lot of what I work with here at New Spring. Uh, I do a lot of uh, marriage and pre-marriage coaching, but we're not just talking about romantic relationships. This time around, we're talking about love relationships in general, and I'm excited about it. I want to talk with you uh, a little bit about uh, the ways that sometimes people get lost in love. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but I kind of do when I'm watching a romantic comedy movie with my wife or something like that, maybe a dramatic uh, movie. Have you ever noticed that in the movies, love is how people find their way? You know, I mean, they start off just a mess, right? Their life is a terrible mess. They don't know what they want to do and where they're headed in life. And then some wonderful love relationship happens. And as a result, they find their purpose in life. And everything is great. And they have the singular focus now as a result of this love relationship. How many of us can attest to the fact that that is not the way that it works in real life, right? I mean, here's the deal. You know what this is like. You start off the day with focus. You start off the day with drive. Everything makes sense so far. Everything's going fine. And then you get on the phone with that person, whether that person is your spouse or your mother or an in-law or a friend or whatever it is. And once you have that point of contact, whether it's a phone call or a face-to-face meeting or whatever, you leave there going, wait a minute, what? Where, where am I? What is my purpose in life, right? All of a sudden, everything is totally off kilter, you know? It's, so it's easy to get lost in love. And I want to just take this first week, and, I, and one of the first things I want to do is I want us to shake off or dispense uh, the old idea that love is somehow supposed to be easy, right? I mean, I hear that sometimes. I remember uh, it's been, a, a, I guess now a few weeks ago, I was doing some marriage coaching, and this couple was in my office, and, and he said, you know, it's just so frustrating. He said, you know, it seems like love is supposed to be, I've heard people say that love is the most natural thing in the world, right? And I said, well, buddy, they say the same thing about childbirth, and it's... Uh, you know, I mean, I was there when my wife gave birth to our two children, and that didn't look very easy to me, you know. So we're just going to go ahead and dispense with the idea that love is easy because it's not. And as a matter of fact, if this will help you at all, we're going to go to Jesus' words, and we're going to talk about how Jesus talked about the fact that love wasn't easy. We're going to go back to Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 37. And this is what Jesus said. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. But now look at this. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. All right, now let's think about this for a second. When Jesus talks about the law and the prophets, what is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the majority of what we have and what we call our Old Testament. That is the majority of pages in your Bible, right? It's the larger section, the early section of the Bible before you get to the New Testament. So now think about this. Jesus is saying all of that in the Old Testament devolves down to two major ideas, love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. So if love were easy, now just think with me about this. If love were easy, then God wasted a lot of ink and a lot of paper giving us instructions for something that shouldn't need that much help. Yes? Right? And God's not into redundancy. So I think what we can take away from that is that Jesus is letting us know love is not easy. As a matter of fact, love may be one of the most challenging endeavors of your life. To love someone the way that God wants you to love, to love sacrificially, to, to love in a way that allows people to connect with you and to feel like, like they, are, they have some level of, of relationship intimacy with you. That's not easy. It never will be. And so we're going to talk a little bit this week, just in this very first talk about, number one, why love can be difficult, and then number two, 
a way that we can start to piece together how to make our love relationships make sense. In the next three weeks, we'll get a little deeper into these things, get a little more practical. I hope you'll bear with me this week. We're going to do kind of the big picture thing this week, if you'll let me. We're going to kind of handle it in some abstract concepts. Next, next few weeks, we'll start getting a little bit more specific and practical. But I want to answer the question, why is love difficult, right? Why are love relationships difficult? And it's a really easy answer. It's because human relationships are a mixture of two components that are explosive when you put them together, right? One is imperfection, and the other is pressure, right? Now, you take imperfection by itself, and it's not that big a deal. And you take pressure by itself, and that's not big a deal, that big a deal. But you put the two of them together, and you have the makings of a massive explosion, right? And we know this because in your relationship, maybe you felt like sometimes the pressure factor skyrockets, right? Stress gets out of control. There's a little bit more going on than normal. When that pressure gets more than usual, you know that your relationship has the potential to have more difficulty in those moments of, of extra stress. Or the same is true of imperfection. Sometimes Sometimes when, when we show off our imperfection more than normal, we have more issues. So we have imperfection, we have stress, they come together, they cause problems. And some of you are going to experience this right after the service is over. Right? You're going to have pressure and imperfection hitting at one time because you're going to get in your car. You will, you know, you will have enjoyed the service at New Spring. You will get in your car. And, and now, though, this, the, the focus shifts right, from New Spring to lunch. And you've got to figure out, this is the big question of the day, where are we going to go have lunch, right? So you look over at your spouse, your fiance, your significant other, and you say, where would you like to go eat for lunch? And they say to you, I don't know. I don't know, right? Anything is fine, right? And so you say, okay, well, how about Italian? No, I'm not really feeling Italian. Right? But they're nice. You're, you know, you're married to a nice person, and, and they want to reciprocate, right? So they turn back to you, and they say, well, where would you like to eat? And you say, I don't know. Anything is fine, right? So they say, how about barbecue? No, I had barbecue on Friday, right? You can spend an entire Sunday afternoon with anywhere is fine, I don't know right? You can keep going back and forth. And that stress and imperfection is there because you know, you know, people are eating, tables are being filled, and the longer you wait in the parking lot, the longer you'll wait in the restaurant, you're going to get there, they're, you know, they're going to hand you one of those magic electronic buzzers, you're going to be standing there waiting for the heavens to part and a table to open up, Wah! you know, and in the middle of that, you're thinking, well, there goes my Sunday, right? Pressure and imperfection, you put those two things together, you get an explosive mix, and usually it's a lot more difficult than waiting for a table at a restaurant, we experience real stress, real work stress, real life issues, real imperfection. How do you deal with that? Our talk title today is What I Needed Was Someone to Show Me. We pulled that title from a phrase from the song Lost in Love, but I think it may be one of the, I think maybe one of the, the most key things in life in terms of love is admitting that we need an example. I mean, sometimes it's healthy to go, I need somebody to show me how to do this. When I was... Um, when I went to college, straight out of high school, I went to college, and, and I was in the, I guess, late 90s, early 2000s uh, range. And uh, when, I, when I went to college, my parents were helping me with tuition, but I couldn't afford, but, but, but I knew I was going to need to help. I was going to need to contribute. So I signed up for one of those work-study programs they have, you know? And you know the form. You fill out the form. You, you, you write what you know how to do. You know you're 18. This is what I've learned to do so far, right? And where I messed up was assuming that there was going to be a sane, rational, verbal reading person on the other end of this form who would look at what I knew how to do and somehow place me within the range of those items, right? But it doesn't work that way. Some of you know it doesn't work that way. And in my particular case, I think whoever read my form was either like maybe getting ready to 
quit their job, you know, and so it was like their last day and they were really trying to just make life miserable on everybody, or maybe they just had a sense of irony, I don't know. But honestly, in my heart, I believe they were assigning people based off of what their last name was, right? So I truly think that if you, if you went to college that year and your last name was Ford, I think you were going to be working in the automotive shop, right? Because my last name is Hoover, and um, so when I got there, right, I was one of two people assigned to repair vacuum cleaners on the college campus for the year. Now, if you think about this, right, if you look at my list, right, it says there was one spot that says, what do you not know how to do? And I wrote anything mechanical. Now, what were they thinking, right? So I end up there. Now, my boss knows nothing about repairing vacuum cleaners because the guy that I'm, repl I'm a freshman, I'm replacing a senior who's been there for four years and done this. And he's gone, right? He's not there to train me. My boss doesn't know how to do anything. The other guy that was doing the job never worked the same hours as me. He was an outgoing senior. He was a biology major. He had no time for me. I had to figure this out on my own. So I come in there and they have these big, you know, the big industrial vacuum, not big ones, but the industrial vacuum cleaners with the big red sack that, you know, balloons up when you turn it on, the, the metal thing. Okay, you know what I'm talking about. So I go in there. And there's like 20 of them lined up. And he says, these are the ones left over from the summer. You need to repair those, and then you can get to the ones, you know, for this year. And uh, he said, here's the cabinet. He opens up the cabinet. Here's every part of these motors in this vacuum cleaner. Now, since then, I went, you know, I, I, I told you guys a few weeks ago, I was a mechanic for a while. So since then, I've gone to school, and I've learned what armatures and brushes and springs and all that do. I had no idea back then. No idea. So I'm looking at this cabinet with all this stuff. I have no idea what to do with anything. But over on the right side of the cabinet are these little black things that look pretty put together. And I asked the guy, I said, what are those? And he said, well, those are complete motors. He said, you know, if you, if you have a vacuum cleaner that is so totally messed up that there is no way to fix the motor, what you do, there's like three screws. You take the screws out, you take the old motor out, you put the new motor in, you pop the belt over it, and you're ready to go, right? Now, the guy I replaced ordered, as I recall, I think he ordered four of those motors over three semesters. I ordered 32 of them in one semester. Right? Let me tell you what, the vacuum cleaners I fixed were fixed. Right? When they went out of my shop, they worked really, really well. I, I became an expert at overhauling vacuum cleaners. But I'll tell you something. Some of the most difficult days of my life came because I became an expert at overhauling relationships. I didn't know how to fix them. I didn't know how the parts Worked. I didn't know how it was designed. I didn't understand how to, how to handle what was not working. And so because I didn't understand how the parts worked, instead of working on the relationship, I just yanked it and replaced it. The problem, though, with overhauling relationships is you tend to keep bumping into the same issues over and over again. So the thing about it is, is, as God followers, and not just as that, but as people who want to live successful lives, we, we cannot spend our life overhauling relationships. We're going to have to learn how this works. What are the pieces and parts that interact together? That's what we're going to be spending these four weeks talking about in, in detail. But, but how, how do these things work? And, and really, we've got to have somebody to show us how to do this, right? So when I think about kind of where I'm getting ready to go with this message at this point, it reminds me of a story that I've heard my dad tell and other pastors tell in my life. You know, the, there was a pastor who had been invited uh, to speak to the eight-year-old boys, a group of eight-year-old boys. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but if you're used to speaking to adults, speaking to kids is a whole different thing, right? So you've got to, you know, he, this pastor was a little concerned. He's like, I don't know if I know, still know how to relate to eight-year-old boys, and he's trying to kind of work this through in his head. So he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to tell kind of a funny story, kind of like a joke, an icebreaker, kind of get things started, you know? So he goes and he talks to these eight-year-old boys, and, uh, and he says, all right, 
guys, what is brown and, and, and furry and has a long tail and runs up trees to, to collect nuts for winter, right? And one of the eight-year-old boys looked real perplexed, and he raised his hand, and he said, Pastor, we're in church, so I know the answer's Jesus, <laughs> but it sounds a lot like a squirrel, right? So when I start talking to you about, we're in a series called Lost in Love. This first week is what I needed with someone to show me. And I say that we need an example to show us how relationships work. You, you know this is where I'm going. We're in church. The answer is Jesus. But we're going farther than that because there may be no other thing in all of Scripture where the Bible tells us as clearly that Jesus is the perfect example of knowing how to do something. I want to, I want to just run through several verses. I don't usually put them together like this rapid fire, but I want to go through several verses that kind of illustrate this. John 13, 34, and 35. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. How? Just as I have loved you, you should love each other, right? John 15, 12. This is my commandment. Love each other. How? In the same way I have loved you. 1 John 3, 16. We know what real love is. Why? Because Jesus gave up his life for us. 1 John 4, 9 through 11. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. 1 John 4, 19. We love each other. Why? Because he first loved us. What is the message of the Bible? We read these verses and the Bible is saying, look, you will not be able to love well unless you can adopt the example of Jesus Christ because he is the picture of love. He is the one who shows us how love is designed to work. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us God is love. So as we look at this, what we're going to do is we're going to just take one example. I hope you don't mind. We're going to take just one example of Jesus loving people, and I specifically picked one that I felt like was very generic. I think we can take lessons from this story and apply it to just about any love relationship. And I told you this was going to be big picture. This was going to be kind of abstract. So I'm going to need you to really hang tight with me and think about how these things apply to your love relationships. And I got to tell you, it wasn't easy picking a story because if you read the Gospels, it's just story after story after story of Jesus' love. But I picked this one, and we're going to explore it starting in John 13 and starting in verse 1. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. And then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around them. Okay, if you have been in church for any length of time, right, I need you to help me with this, because if you've been in church for any length of time, you've heard the story before, it's familiar to you, I need you to extract from it the stained glass and the organ music, okay? I need you to, because this is not, uh, you know, we kind of think of these, oh, Jesus washing the disciples' feet, this is a sacred moment, it's right before the, in the crucifixion order of events, and, okay, no, 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 this was a dirty, gritty, smelly, ugly moment, all right? Here you've got the disciples, they're walking by foot on dirty roads for days at a time, you know, they've, they've spent all day today walking on dirty roads. They're showing up for dinner, right? And so their feet are smelly and stinky and dirty, and they didn't eat around normal tables like we do these days. When they ate, they actually ate reclining. So the way that they ate, it was most likely that somebody's feet were going to be within very close proximity of your face. So it's super important that somebody wash everybody's stinky feet before they ate. You may think you have someone in your life who has foot odor, but this goes beyond 
right? This is pretty significant. So the way this would work, and it was pretty common, that whenever people would get together for a dinner like this, whoever was the least important servant in the house would come and wash everybody's feet. And that's what the disciples expected, right? Whoever was of least importance would come wash their feet, right? Now, What's important to recognize about this is the disciples have just been fighting, right? You go back a few chapters and you'll read that the disciples have been in a big fight. And maybe you know what this is like. Maybe if, if, if you're married or, or you, you, know, you think of some other love relationship in your life, you know you have fights about a lot of things, but it always seems like this one fight is what you gravitate back towards. Well, for the disciples, it was the fight about who's most important, right? Now, they knew Jesus was most important, but they were fighting for the number two slot. You know, who, who's, import, who's, who's second in importance uh, to Jesus? And so they, this was a common fight for them. They'd, get, they'd think they got outside of earshot of Jesus, which was ridiculous, but they would think they had gotten outside his earshot, and they would start fighting about this. And that's just what happened before they walk into this supper. So now you think about this. There's supposed to be somebody who's not important at all to come wash everybody's feet, but when they get there, there isn't anybody to wash anybody's feet. So what you have is you have Jesus and 12 disciples who are all standing there, and all the 12 disciples are standing there with their hands in their pockets, looking around, waiting for somebody to start washing feet, you know. And Peter, James, and John, you know, we're part of the dream team. Somebody down there, Bartholomew, one of the lesser-known disciples, somebody better pick up a towel and start doing something pretty quick, you know. And there's tension. There's imperfection, right? There's pressure, Tension in the moment. Now think about what it must have been like to be one of these 12 guys waiting for, somebody to, waiting for somebody to admit they were not important to watch Jesus wrap a towel around his waist and start washing their feet. For Jesus to act as though, this is what's so important, for Jesus to act as though he was the least important person in the room. That's love. That's real love. In fact, later on in this passage, Jesus would say, I have loved you, I have, I have washed your feet, so you ought to wash each other's feet. He basically said, if you don't think that you're better than me, you should be willing to humble yourself the way that I've humbled myself. That's love, that's true love. And so if you'll allow me, I wanna just extract a few quick lessons from what we learned from Jesus washing the disciples' feet, and then we'll be done. Okay, here's the first one. If you wanna love like God loves, you need to be very secure in who you are. If you want to love like God loves, you need to know who you are and you need to be secure in who you are. Let me read you this verse from John 13. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So, therefore, as a result of this understanding, given that he knew this, he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. See, Jesus had no issue behaving as though he were the least important person in the room because he was not in the middle of an identity crisis. He knew who he was. He knew what God had given him. He knew what his future was. There was absolutely nothing that was in jeopardy. He could afford to love. There was nothing that he could have, here's, here's what's so huge, guys. There was nothing he could have given the disciples that was gonna take away from what he had. There's something about knowing who you are. There's something about having that sense of identity. There's something about saying, this is not going to take anything away from me. There's two realities I want to talk to you about. These two realities, if you're taking notes, these two realities are what help keep you grounded in your identity. They help keep you grounded in who you are. Here's the first one. You need to remember or be aware of or be thinking about how much you've been forgiven. 
how much you've been forgiven. Let me read you this story. In Luke 7, the Bible tells us that a very sinful woman came up to Jesus. She brought a jar of very expensive perfume. She, she, she cried. Her tears fell on Jesus' feet because she was at Jesus' feet. She dried, her, her, she dried the tears from her feet with her hair. And the Bible tells us that there was a Pharisee in the room named Simon. And uh, Simon was thinking. He didn't even say this out loud, but Simon was thinking to himself, if Jesus knew that this gal was as sinful as she is, he would not let her touch him, right? So Jesus goes over to Simon. He says, Simon, walk with me. Talk with me, buddy. I need to talk with you about what you're thinking. That would have freaked me out, right? Because Jesus totally knew what he was thinking. He takes, Judah, he takes uh, Simon aside, and here's what he says. Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. So you've got one loan as a big loan, one, is, one loan as a small loan, but neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Now, who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, well, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. And I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little only loves little. And then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Here's the key to understanding this. Jesus was not just saying there are two groups of people on this earth. There's a group of people who've done a lot of stuff wrong and Jesus has forgiven them. And so they love God a lot. And there are people who are pretty squeaky clean for the most part. And they've only been forgiven a little bit. And so they don't love very much. No, what Jesus was saying is there's only one group of people. And that is the group of people for whom God has forgiven a lot. They've done a lot wrong and God has forgiven them a lot. That would include all of us. Jesus is just saying there's some people that don't think they fit into that category. There are some people who don't think they forget, they've been forgiven very much, like Simon himself, the Pharisee in the room. He thought he was pretty good. He was thinking it's okay for Jesus to want me to be around him, but it's not okay for Jesus to want this gal to be around him because she's done a lot of stuff wrong. And God is saying, let me tell you something, buddy. People who understand that I've forgiven them a lot love me a lot and want to be around me, but people who don't think that I've had to forgive them for a lot don't love me very much. And I think there is this point at which we recognize that our identity in a large part hinges on the debt that God has forgiven for us. It, it, it hinges on our ability to stay aware of the fact that it did take Jesus Christ dying on the cross to pay for the things that we've done wrong. It helps us stay grounded. It helps remind us who we are and what we've been given. Here's the second thing. We don't just need to remember that we've been forgiven, but we also need to remember what God has given us, what we have in Jesus Christ. I want you to think about this example with me, if you would. Imagine that you're traveling maybe for business, something like that. You're in Seattle. And so um, you're thirsty. You go up to a pop machine. You're getting ready to put your dollar in and get a Coke. And there's a person in front of you, right? And as he kind of turns his head a little bit, you notice that it's Bill Gates, right? The Microsoft gazillionaire, right? And so he takes his dollar and he puts it in the machine and the machine eats it, right? Doesn't, he doesn't get a Coke. The machine takes his dollar. It won't give it back. And so he takes out his, I guess it would be a Windows phone, right? He, he takes out his phone, right? And he starts dialing the number on the, on the Coke machine, and you ask him, what, what are you doing? And he says, I'm going to get my dollar back, right? And you think to yourself, are you kidding me? Bill Gates, you, you're going you're gonna to call and, and be put on hold and wait for a customer service representative? Your call is very important to us, kind of your third in line kind of phone call. Wait for them to answer so that then you can send in a letter, you know, signed by, by yourself and two witnesses to prove that you lost your dollar to the machine to wait for them to mail you your dollar, which is probably going to take between now and when the rapture comes. It could be 10 weeks. It could be three years. You're going to wait for that for a dollar? You're going to tell Bill Gates, you're going to say, Bill, your time is so much more valuable than whatever you would get back from calling this phone number. 
See, for him to get, for Bill Gates to get his dollar back would be fair, but it'd be foolish because he doesn't, he doesn't need it. He, to, to chase fair for him would, would actually slow him down. It would take him away from things that he needs to be doing. It would, it would actually be a total waste of his time because of what he has. It's such a small thing. Let me read this to you. In Galatians 4, the Bible says that when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Daddy, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. 1 John 3, 1, see how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is what we are. Romans 8, 17, and since we are his children, we will share his treasures, for everything God gives to his son Christ is ours too. See, Bill Gates, we, we tend to think of him as rich because his riches are easy to see and, and, and can be verified in a bank account, but what God has given you is so much more. Bill Gates is poor in proportion, right? So here's what you have to think about. There are going to be moments in your life where you could chase fair, and to get what is rightfully yours would be fair, but it would be foolish. Here's the thing. If you really are a child of God, and the Bible says that you are, and if you really have everything that God wants to give you, and the Bible says you will, and if you have God living inside you, and the Bible says that you do, you can't afford fair. You can't. The more you chase fair, the more it's going to slow you down. The more you chase the, the right thing, what I deserve, what I should have, the more you do that, the less you have the potential to be effective. The more that happens, you just be chasing pocket change in the pop machines of life, hoping to somehow rectify what has been wrong in your life, and it will never happen. See, love happens when we're willing to let go of fair. Love happens when we're willing to say, it's not fair, it's love. You know, we, we, it's so often we tell people, well, life isn't fair. You know, uh, the, you know fair, fair ended in the Garden of Eden, we, we go that, and that's all so true. But here's the cool part of that. It's not fair, it's love. That's the cool thing. When you see Jesus Christ and the artist's depiction suspended between heaven and earth with nails through his hands and through his feet, that's not fair. It's love. We can't afford fair. Fair will waste your time. Here's the second thing. In order to love like God, we have to be willing to accept imperfect. In order to love like God, we have to be willing to accept imperfect. You know, God could have, Jesus could have said to his disciples, fellas, you know what? I've just about had it with you. All this bickering and arguing and being a pain. You know, seriously, I'm the son of God. I offered you guys an apprenticeship program. I offered you an internship slot. You came in. You know, you've really been a disappointment to the team over and over again. The valuations have been bad. I've had to tell you, you know, you keep messing up. I keep telling you what you're not understanding. You're not getting it. You're not really being team players here. So it's, uh, what I've decided to do, we're going we're gonna to go ahead and do a reduction of staff. I'm going to go ahead and let some people go. Some of you are going to be on probation. And as a result of that, I'm going to decide who our ultimate team is going to be, right? And that would have made sense. But here are 12 guys that are completely imperfect. They've got issues. They've got problems. And Jesus is still washing their feet. You have people in your life who have problems. They're imperfect. That's just the pool that we have to pick from. 
right? By the way, when they picked you, they had an imperfect pool to pick from as well. You've got people in your life, they got issues. But when we cut them loose, we're just overhauling the relationship. And Jesus was not about to overhaul the relationship with the disciples because he knew how relationships worked. And he knew that if he could show them true love, they would get it. Do you have somebody in your life who just really struggles to accept imperfection? I'm, sometimes I can be that way. But you know someone in your life maybe who just every fault or flaw or issue that someone has, they just hammer it home. I can't believe you're like this. I can't believe you do this. I can't and it's just nitpicky over and over again. Everything is just not okay with other people. If you, I don't know if you've ever met someone like that. Can I tell you why I think they're like that? I'm just going to go off script for a minute and tell you what I think. I think they're like that because they struggle to accept themselves. I think what you see is the overflow of what's pointed inward. They see imperfection inside. They see problems inside. And they are so harsh with themselves that eventually it just spills over into their other relationships. So how do we deal with that? No matter if you're someone who really does struggle to accept uh, imperfection in others, or for you it's just a, a kind of a minor battle, how do we deal with accepting Imperfect. I want to take you to a verse in the Bible, 2 Corinthians 5. This is Paul speaking. He says, we have stopped evaluating others or measuring others from a human point of view or a human standard of measurement. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view and how differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. All right, now let me just tell you for a second that this verse has been used for years uh, from those nitpicky rejecting type of people to just bash people in the head and say, you know what, you say you're a Christian, but the Bible says if you're a Christian, you're a new creature, and you don't look new to me, you look like the same old person I've always known. So as a result of that, that means you're not a Christian because the Bible says if you were a Christian, you'd be a new person, right? That's not at all what that verse is saying. The beginning of the verse says, we've stopped evaluating, we've stopped measuring people from a human system of measurement. Now think, think with me. If you're in this room and you have some sort of mechanical background or, or background in precision measurement instruments, you know there are different standards of measurement. There are different scales, right? So sometimes you have a standard measurement tool, sometimes you have a metric measurement tool. Some of you in the aircraft industry, sometimes you have specialized measurements that, that, that you have to make. So regardless of all of this, right, you know that if you measure with, with the wrong standard of measure, you will always get the wrong answer. The answer changes when you change the standard of measure, right? So here's what God is saying. God is telling us through the Apostle Paul that when we use a human standard of measure, so you use your own scale of perfection to to, to determine whether you're okay and whether other people in your life are okay, when you're using your standard of measurement, right, you're going to come up with one answer, and that is the kind of person that you see them as. And what Paul is saying is, but then there comes that moment where we jettison our ruler and we accept God's system of measurement, and when we do, we come up with a completely different answer. We actually are introduced to a completely new person because now we see them the way God sees them. It's totally different. And so some of you in this room, you need to hear this because you have been so harsh on yourself. You have beat yourself down because you cannot accept imperfect in you. You have made life miserable on yourself. And what God is saying is it's time to get rid of your standard of measurement and start using God's standard of measurement. By the way, it's called grace. When we want to love well, when we want to love like God loves, we have to be willing to accept imperfection. Here's the third thing quickly, and we'll be done. In order to love like God, you need to be willing to let go of things that you deserve to keep. If you want to love like God, you need to let go of things that you deserve to keep. We talked about this a minute ago when we said that chasing fair is foolish. You think about the fact that Jesus was on that cross 
that he died for our sins and that he deserved to keep his life. The Bible says nobody took it away from him because they couldn't. He had to give his life up. It means letting go something that you deserve to keep. In Philippians 2, it says, you must have the same attitude that Christ had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to what? To cling to. He didn't hold on to it. Instead, he gave up. He let go of his divine privileges. And he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. There's something about letting go. Letting go of what you deserve to keep. That is love. The moms in this room who got up at 2 o'clock in the morning and 4 o'clock and 6 o'clock to answer that cry of your baby in the room next door, you deserve to keep your sleep, but you didn't keep your sleep. You woke up and took care of that baby. Why? Because that was love. Some of you in this room are, are writing big checks to colleges that your kids were fortunate enough to get accepted into. And you're not doing that because somebody's taking that away from you. You have a right to keep it, and yet you're giving it away. Why? Because that's love. Love is letting go of something that you deserve to keep. I'm, I'm inspired by something, and I hope you don't mind me kind of like taking this to a somber place for a minute, but... I'm, I'm inspired by a story when, it turn, when we talk about letting go of something you deserve to keep. There's a, a man named Robertson McQuilkin. He was the president of Columbia Bible College for years. Now the college is called Columbia International University. But Dr. McQuilkin was loved by the student body. He was a great president, but unfortunately in the late 80s, his wife was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. So she's much too young to be diagnosed with Alzheimer's, but she was. And for, for years, for a few years, he was able to take care of her and, and take care of his duties as president of the college at the same time. But as her condition deteriorated, it was clear that it couldn't stay that way. In fact, he would say that often she would get distressed that he wasn't in the house with her during the day, and she would walk the half mile from their house to his office just looking for him. And so he had to make a very hard decision, and he stepped down from his position. He gave up something he had a right to keep. He stepped down from his position as president of the university. And he got up in front of chapel with all the students gathered, and he made this speech. This is what he said in 1990. He said, I haven't in my life experienced easy decision-making on major decisions, but one of the simplest and clearest decisions I've had to make is this one, because circumstances dictated it. Muriel now, in the last couple of months, seems to be almost happy when with me, and almost never happy when not with me. In fact, she seems to feel trapped, becomes very fearful, sometimes almost terror. And when she can't get to me, there can be anger. She's in distress. But when I'm with her, she's happy and contented. And so I must be with her at all times. And you see, it's not only that I promised in sickness and in health, till death do us part, and I'm a man of my word. But as I've said, I don't know with this group, but I've said it publicly, it's the only fair thing. She sacrificed for me for 40 years to make my life possible. So if I cared for her for 40 years, I'd still be in debt. However, there's much more. It's not that I have to. It's that I get to. I love her very dearly, and you can tell it's not easy to talk about. She's a delight. And it's a great honor to care for such a wonderful person. When I hear those words, when I hear him, I've heard the audio of his speech, it just keeps sounding to me as I hear that it's not fair, it's love. It's not fair, but it's love. And I just want to ask you right now, who is in your life right now 
What relationship is in your life right now that you want so badly for things to be fair? You want things to be right, to be justified, to be the way things ought to be. When you, you have so much you could afford to love, you could afford to let go of fair, you could afford to, to, to show the world that it's not fair, it's love. Because that's what Jesus has shown us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Not only for, t- for showing us love, but for giving us an example to follow. And in these moments, Father, I pray that not only would we feel your love in this room, but I pray that if there's anyone in this room who does not yet have a relationship with you, that they would be enveloped in your presence and have a sense that today is their day. Heads are still bowed and eyes are still closed. If you're in this room and you would say, you know what, Jonathan, I've never reached out to God and told him that I want to have a relationship with him, but I want to do that. How would I do that? I'm going to say the words to a very simple prayer. And the important thing is, as you listen to these words, whether or not they really mirror what's going on in your heart, and if you feel this legitimately in your heart, and you're, you, you feel like, yes, that's true, that's what I want to say to God, you can follow along with me, you can say this silently in your head to God, and it will be settled once and for all. Ready? Here we go. Dear Jesus, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you died for me. I know I'm imperfect. And I know that there's no way for me to get to heaven on my own. So today, I put all my trust in you. I believe in you, Jesus. And I ask you to make me God's child. In Jesus' name. Now, would everyone look this way? Just really quickly, I know everyone's in a hurry to get to lunch, but real quickly, if you just prayed that prayer, we want to tell you how excited we are, and we want to get you something, okay? We have a booklet and a DVD that we've put together, and we want to make sure we get it in your hands. So if you prayed that prayer, would you fill out that Talk to Us card, check the box that says, I pray to receive Christ, take it back to guest services, and we will get you that packet. Our gift to you, no strings attached, all right? Thank you so much for being here next week is week two of Lost in Love.